A Thoughtful Faith Podcast is a production of Mormon Stories and the Open Stories Foundation. All donations to A Thoughtful Faith are tax-deductible and go directly towards keeping the podcast alive and towards building a community of support for Mormons like you. To support the podcast or to join the community, please become a monthly subscriber today at athoughtfulfaith.org. Welcome to A Thoughtful Faith Podcast. This is Sarah Colette, and tonight I am joined by Daniel McDonald. Um, He is a lawyer by profession, but also an author, and um, he has been a journalist. He is a um, husband and father of six children, and he has written a book, and I'm going to try and say this right. Every time I try and say the name of this book, I get mixed (laughs) up, but it's Gethsemanesia. Yes, that's right. Gethsemanesia. (laughs) Gethsemanesia. And we're going to talk tonight about that book and um, also his history and really focus on Christ and his experiences, um, getting to know his Savior and also um, his his testimony and how um, he has kind of been on a journey of Christianity. Would you call that, would you say that that's accurate? <laughs> yes. And, and you can call me Dan. Okay, Dan. <laughs> Thank you. Um, okay. So let's just jump in. You ready? I'm ready. Okay. The first thing that I really want to hear you talk about is your history in terms of the church specifically. You can go back as far as you want, but I want to know what how you started to develop spiritually, your first spiritual experiences, and your relationship to the church. Fair enough. Uh, so I, I was born in, in Utah, and my parents uh, are both converts to the church, and there, there's kind of an interesting story there. My mom's British. Uh, she was born and raised in England, and uh, uh, my father was born and raised in Provo, went to BY High as the only non-Mormon at BY High, although my grandmother, my father's mother, was an active member of the church. So that was kind of an interesting dynamic that my father grew up under, going to BY High in Provo, not being a member of the church. Uh, He met my mother through a missionary who fell in love with my mother while he was on his mission in England. <laughs> so, oh, one of those uh, he sent, yeah, it's one of those stories. <laughs> he sent her to the States. Well, she came to the States because she always wanted to come to the States and she converted in England, met my father. The two of them got married. My dad got baptized when he was 26. Uh, so, but I always remember from a very young age, just always having an interest in, in spiritual things. And my mom uh, would take me to church every now and then, and I always felt good. It, I always felt something there as a little child. This was before I was eight. Uh, I turned eight. All the other kids were getting baptized. I wanted to get baptized. Uh, but my dad couldn't baptize me because he was he was not uh, I don't even think he was a priest at that po- at that point in time. Uh, but I asked my dad to baptize me. And that was a turning point in his spiritual development in his life. Because about that time, his his father died. And uh, 
so my father baptized me, and then shortly after I was baptized, uh, my family went through the temple and, and were sealed together. And so I, I got to go into the celestial room as a nine or 10 year old kid and see all of that and experience all of that. And that was a, uh, you know, that was a pretty neat thing. It was a neat concept that I, I distinctly remember as, as, as being a very touching uh, part of my my spiritual development, and then, then I I just kind of turned into your normal knucklehead Idaho teenager. I grew up in Idaho. There's not a whole lot to do there, uh, but get in trouble. So, <laughs> <laughs> I I I did my fair share of stupid things, and and really lost interest. I I would say in the church. My mom, my mom made a rule that we we'd have to go to sacrament meeting, but after that you know, everything else was voluntary. And so I took full advantage of that rule. And I was not raised in a family where, you know, we had a rigid, uh, dogmatic upbringing. We, you know, we didn't, we didn't have family prayer. We, we prayed over Sunday dinner and that was about it. Uh, we didn't have family home evening. We, we didn't, uh, we, we just weren't dogmatic at all. And, um, uh, we didn't have family scripture study, of course, but my parents were good people, and they they taught me to love others, and they taught me to be kind, and they and they taught me to be honest, and, and things like that. Uh, so, hmm, I got into some issues when I was a teenager that I found that I couldn't get myself out of. I'll just leave it at that. Okay. <laughs> and uh, uh, needed some, found myself in need of some kind of divine intervention to pull myself out of some of the stupid decisions that, that I had made. And I would say when I was about 17, um, I started to read the Book of Mormon. So I, I just have to ask here, why did you resort, I mean, to the Book of Mormon? Was, was, that, was Mormonism always kind of in the background, even though you were maybe rebelling against it? Or I mean, that's kind of a remarkable decision for a 17-year-old to resort to the Book of Mormon, especially when his parents aren't necessarily pushing that on him. Yeah, well, and my mom, my mom and my dad, by the time I was 17, they were very active in the church. My mom was the okay. stake primary president and, and and very active and involved. And I'd had an older brother go on a mission. But I'm just talking about me personally. Okay. I sort of lost, I sort of lost interest um, for a while there. I mean, I would go to church, but I would just go through the motions. And I didn't really feel any connection. Okay. Uh, and I just felt like the church was more of an annoyance and a list of things you can't do right. than than anything. I was more interested in skiing, <laughs> so um, and girls, of course, right. uh, you know, and other things that teenagers are interested in. But as I said, you know, I found myself uh, in in a situation where I wanted to change who I was, but I couldn't, and uh, I just kept doing the same stupid things over and over again. Uh, my wife, who was my best friend, uh, my one of my best friends, uh, she was actually dating the football star, um, was always very close to me and always kind of watched out for me and was always very good to me. And I think she recommended that, well, why don't you read the Book of Mormon? I thought, well, heck, I, I got kicked out of seminary when I was a freshman. <laughs> actually, I don't think I got kicked out, but I, let's just say I wasn't a, a a productive member of my freshman seminary class. And I, after my freshman year, I had no desire to go to seminary after that. Um, and I thought, what the heck? I've never read the Book of Mormon. And 
I am a Mormon. Maybe I should read it. <laughs> so, so I read it, and as I as I read it, um, it was amazing to me because it felt I felt a power come into my life, and I felt like Christ was reaching out to me, and 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 trying to pull me towards Him. And I felt a power come into my life that I'd never felt before. And I thought, wow, this is, this is real. And I, I had a desire to change. But not only a desire to change, but I, I suddenly found that I had power to change. Because I was learning about Christ and, and who He is and what He's all about and how much He loves me. And uh, that was a real turning point for me. And um, my wife had the good sense to break up with her football star boyfriend and start dating me. Um, and uh, uh, we dated and, 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 uh, for two years. Then we got engaged. Then I went on a mission. To... So you were engaged first. Yes, I was one of those type. We were engaged first. We, we broke that taboo. Um, had a great mission. I was a Zone leader, assistant to the president, the whole Where did you serve? the whole nine yards. Chicago, okay, Chicago, Illinois. Served there for two years. Got married six weeks after I got home. Wow! <laughs> and wow. Uh, and then uh, wanted to become a seminary teacher and got into that program. But then that's when I started to see a different side of the church. Um, and and I was studying sociology at the University of Utah, and you know I was studying. Uh, the social construction of religion and and all of these new ideas came into my my life and my mind. But um, you know, I, I always stayed active and, and faithful in the church. Do you mind if you articulate um, kind of the nature of maybe one or two of doubts or questions that you were able to form at the time? No, when, when I, I when I say I saw a different side of things when I was in the training program to be a seminary teacher. I I think for the first time in my life I just saw some of the I don't even know how do you put it the 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 spiritual competitiveness okay. that exists in our in our culture of okay. people people trying to outdo each other in terms of spirituality or at least their piousness and their in uh, their expression of faith and I just started to see through it and I started to I guess be judgmental and and question the genuineness of of these beliefs and i also had problems with some of the methods um you know the of of teaching uh the the pedagogy if you will uh of of how they were going about it and i I just didn't find that uh it was something for me right Um, so how long were you in that I was in that for about a year, okay. and then I and then I dropped out and decided I wanted to do something different. And, and I and I realized it wasn't as intellectually stimulating or challenging for me as I had hoped or thought or wanted it to be. I was more interested in scholarly types of things rather than just kind of the fluffy, flowery uh, things that are associated with the seminary program. I just thought I, there's no way I could do that for the rest of my life. Okay, so. So I finished my sociology degree, got a law degree at BYU. All through that time, I remained active in the church, faithful in church. In fact, I was an elders quorum president uh, when I was going through law school. I was not in a student ward. I was in a, 
I lived in an older part of American Fork. I, I'll never forget, we had 117 prospective elders wow. in that ward. So I was trying to do that and go through law school and be a father to three children at the same time. And it was just a, a huge burden. It was a, it was a really huge burden. But I had very good experiences when I was the, the elders quorum president. Um formed lifelong friendships, built lasting, loving relationships with people that I associate with to this day. I I moved out of that ward, graduated from law school, moved up here to Cedar Hills, where I still live. Um, immediately got put in another Elders Corn presidency, and then got put in the bishopric, and then went from the bishopric to the high council. I was on the high council for several years, and then then I got put in uh, to the stake presidency as the executive secretary. And I, it just started to wear me down. Okay. The responsibilities. The responsibilities, the, you know, just in, incessant meetings, the... And at the same time that I was kind of on this, I, I don't know what you would call it, but this upward... Uh, what some people would call in our culture an upwardly mobile track, you know, I mean, yes. I was on my way to becoming bishop or <laughs> state president or something. I mean, climbing I, the ladder. I mean, I wasn't <laughs> wanting to, but, but from out, from the outside looking in, I mean, I was, um, you were getting all the right callings. Yeah. I was getting all the right callings and, and, um, but I just found that I was not happy. Okay. I was not happy because during the same time I was fighting illness and then I was a lawyer at the largest firm in the, in the state. I was a partner there, young partner. And, um, I was handling all of the major litigation for the LDS church. And, you know, I represented the first presidency and, uh, I worked with president Hinckley, president Faust and president Monson. And they were my clients. I mean, I went into court and defended them when they got sued and when they got subpoenaed and, um, now, th so, this this is a question I wonder if you feel comfortable ask, answering, but does that actually happen frequently where they are going into court themselves? I mean, do they have to show up often? No, <laughs> okay. no, no. It just, it was just a weird, it was just a weird set of events. You know, when I was there, this would be in... From 2000 to about 2005, um, there there was a major lawsuit between the Salt Lake Tribune and the Deseret News. And what you read about in the paper was the fight between the Salt Lake Tribune and the Deseret News. What you didn't read about were the threats from the owners of the Salt Lake Tribune to sue the First Presidency for allegedly interfering with their right to buy back the newspaper from the media news group in Denver that they had sold it to. And so the first presidency got subpoenaed uh, to give depositions, to produce records, to produce minutes of all of the first presidency and quorum of the 12 meetings wow. for years and years and years, going all the way back to 1952 when the joint operating agreement between the Deseret News and the Salt Lake Tribune was formed and the Newspaper Agency Corporation was formed. And so it was some pretty high-profile stuff, and I was heavily involved in that. And so all of this was kind of going on at the same time. I had some serious health problems. I was, I was seeing a different side of the church as a lawyer for the church. Um, 
and, and then I was seeing a different side of the church from being on the high council and the stake presidency. What yeah. are those different sides? Uh, it's, it's more of the business, uh, administrative side of things. And, uh, it was, a, it was, a, I mean, it was a wonderful time in my life. It was a wonderful experience. And, uh, but it was, a, oddly enough, when I was having that much interaction at that high of a level is kind of when my little faith crisis started to begin. And it really was with my health problems. Okay. Um, you know, there's this myth in our culture, in our community, and you hear it over the pulpit all the time that if you, the, the, kind of this if-then thinking, if right. if you do this, 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 and this, then everything's going to be all right. If you keep the commandments, you'll prosper in the land. Uh, kind of our standard misinterpretation of the Book of Mormon uh, promise. And so I firmly believe that because I was doing all of what I viewed in my mind as these good, righteous things that I wouldn't have, I shouldn't have all these health problems that I, I had. And yet I had very serious health problems. Talk about the health problems a little bit. Explain to the audience what those health problems were. Uh, well, I had lung disease and uh, I had lungs like a smoker uh, filled with scar tissue and the doctors didn't know why. When did you get diagnosed with this in, in reference that you had mentioned like 2000 to 2005, but about when did this start for you? The illness started probably in about 2002, okay. I would say. Um, and um, I literally would have pneumonia or bronchitis for about nine months of the year. Wow. Um, I was in and out of the emergency room, uh, in and out of the hospital. Um had a couple of near misses where, you know, I, I literally felt like I was going to check out and honestly wanted to check out because I was just so tired of fighting it. I couldn't breathe. The, the pressures of my church calling were just unrelenting. The pressures of my job uh, and, 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 and serving the church, even in my job, was, was unrelenting and... Uh, I couldn't sleep at night, but I'd stuff to get up and go to work and I would pray for relief and I didn't get it. Um, I felt like God had just completely abandoned me and forsaken me. And it just, it kind of rocked my world. I just, I thought, well, how could I be doing all of these good things, what I perceive to be good things and how could I be the good guy? And yeah, all it felt like my whole world was caving in and it really came to a head when I mean I was so sick uh, I finally got diagnosed probably in about 2004 with COPD which is chronic obstructive pulmonary disease and it's a form of emphysema uh, and chronic bronchitis um, it's actually one of the leading causes of death in, wow. in people uh, but they didn't know a lot about it at the time and didn't know how to treat it and what they found was I, I, not to dwell on my health problems, but they finally diagnosed me, and uh, they they uh, realized that what was causing my lung disease was acid free flowing from my stomach into my lungs. I would aspirate stomach acid oh, wow. all the time because I did not have a valve uh, between my esophagus and my stomach. Oh wow. 
And so I was inhaling. So your whole life you'd been yeah. through it. Oh, wow. My whole life. And so by this time, I had lost 54% of my lung capacity. I was at about 46% of where I ought to be. Um, there was scar tissue all over my lungs. I couldn't breathe, couldn't do anything. I put on a lot of weight because one of the ways that they had treated me over the years was to take steroids to reduce the inflammation, which was great for reducing inflammation, but it made me susceptible to infections and it made me put on a lot of weight. Uh, so, but, but I got my diagnosis through some wonderful doctors up at LDS hospital, uh, they did a surgery where they reconstructed my stomach, um, uh, created a, a valve in my between my esophagus and my stomach. Uh, I lost about 65 pounds in six weeks wow. after the surgery um, and missed a lot of work. Um, and I, I fell behind at work. I couldn't make my quotas. That was in the December of 2004. I left and became disillusioned with even practicing law at that point in time. And I, and I left that firm and, and quit practicing law in 2005, in June of 2005. And at the time for me, my, my beef, I guess, was more less with the church, <laughs> per se. Uh, I mean, there was, believe me, we could talk for two hours about the things that drive me nuts about about the church and the, <laughs> and the admini administration of the church, you know, and what I would do if I was king for a day. Right. Um, but I started to kind of have more fundamental doubts and f more fundamental beefs with God. Okay. And I started to think that maybe all this stuff I had learned about prayer uh, and, um, you know, faith uh, and righteousness, uh, and obedience and the blessings of obedience, et cetera, et cetera, was just a bunch of garbage Okay. because it didn't seem to be working for me. It seemed right. like I, I felt at least from my perspective, like I was doing all of the right things. Uh, but my, my professional life, my health, everything was un unraveling. And you know, when you can't breathe, nothing else much matters. So. Right. So my beefs kind of became with, came with God. And then the other fundamental problem I had is just with the judgmental reactions of our faith community. And that was, well, if things aren't working out for you, you need to do this. How many times do you go to the temple? How often do you pray? Oh, you pray once a day? Well, you need to pray twice a day. You're praying twice a day? Well, you need to pray three times a day. You're going to the temple once a month? Oh, well, that's not good enough. Maybe you should try going three times a month, uh, once every week. You know, right. and, and so there's this kind of fundamental, when, when people are suffering in our culture, what I've discovered was that there's a lot of judgment. And when you, especially when you have suffering coupled with doubt, that people think, well, there must be something amiss in his life or else he wouldn't be suffering like this. Right. Did you express your doubts to other people? Did you talk to anyone about them? Yeah, I talked to my fishing buddies yeah. uh, and my spouse. Uh, I, I, I did, and, and I talked to ecclesiastical leaders. And what I found, and kind of the genesis for my book, 
what I found is that you get what I call the standard answers. Right. You know, you pay, pray, and obey, and everything will work out. You pay, pray, and obey, you'll be happy. You read the scriptures, you go to the temple, uh, you know, you, you, you do these kind of formulaic things, and you'll find God, you'll find your spirituality. And I would tell these people, well, I'm doing all that. Um, but it's not working. I mean, there's no one there. I, I'm turning the light switch, but the light's not going on. Right. And, and the response typically was, well, there must be something that you're doing wrong. You're just not praying the right way, or you're, you're just not praying earnestly, or you're not, it was always something wrong with me, you know? And so how did your wife react to, I mean, was she was she supportive of you? Oh, Did she, she understand the nature. Oh, yeah, of she okay. yes. My wife, I wish I could be more like my wife. I mean, she has a very beautiful, simple, kind, and, and loving faith, and very non-judgmental. And she didn't judge me at all, and was very patient. And uh, um. I think some of the things that I would discuss with her at times would freak her out. <laughs> but to be you mean honest, like the nature of your doubts, yeah, the nature of my doubts, and the you know the the questions I had about uh, you know the church and um, God and and prayer and you know just just all of the things that are predominant in our culture. Uh, that are kind of the sacred cows, if you will, that I was kind of, I guess, desecrating or at least, (laughs) at least calling into question. She was very, very kind and loving and, um, and, and, and just loved me. Yeah. And that was the most important thing. Did it begin to get more difficult to go to church? Did your, the nature of your doubts with God affect how you felt at church and actually like in your calling or were you able to separate that? Good question. Um, fortunately for me, I got released from, uh, as state executive secretary. And then I was in primary for oh. four and a half years and, and working with those beautiful, innocent, loving, kind little children for four and a half years, was the perfect kind of retreat, I guess, where I didn't have to be a part of the grown-up world and the grown-up church and hear all of the same old grown-up things that you hear when you go to church every Sunday. Because I got to the point before that that I, I would just, I didn't want to go to church. I would just get nauseous. And I would just, I, I would just feel like there was just nothing there for me. I felt n- nothing. Okay. If that makes sense. It does. I mean, I felt completely disconnected. I felt like, geez, no one here really understands me. Um, you know, and I and I I believed in God. It's just that everything I understood about God and my relationship with God was evolving and, and changing. And um, when I would hear the stuff that I'd heard over the pulpit for years and years and years at church, as you're prone to do, yeah. I would get angry because I would, I would think, you know, that doesn't work for me. I don't, I, I can't relate to that. I don't believe that. Um, and so f- it, it was very, very difficult for a, a long time. 
Well, let me ask, um, on the intellectual side of things, did you start to read about church history or the nature of God? Or I know that you had studied a little bit about sociology, you know, you'd gotten your degree. Um, did you go back at all to any kind of exploration into faith or your religion at all during that time? Well, not during that time. I, I went okay. through my I went through my church history uh, crisis very early in my twenties. You know, when I was still in undergrad and law school. Okay, so and you'd already done that. I'd already done that. I didn't honestly. Um, I'm kind of historically agnostic anyway. <laughs> I, I, as a lawyer, uh, you know, I have a case where an incident happened two years ago. I've got ten witnesses saying ten different things about the same events, so I find. 10 witnesses saying 10 different things about events that happened 150 years ago really don't trouble me um, like they would other people because I just, uh, I'm just kind of, I would describe it as historically agnostic. I just don't really care a whole lot about history or contradictions. And so I I went through that church history phase. That is really interesting. Uh From a lawyer's perspective, I've never, I've never thought about it from that uh-huh. perspective before, but that's really interesting. So you would encounter troubling things in history and just go, ah, who can we trust? Because everyone says something different. Is that kind of what you mean? Um, yeah, a little bit, but um, a, a little bit of that. But I kind of go back to my experience with the Book of Mormon. Um, and I still believe this to this day. Uh, I really don't care how the Book of Mormon got here. Okay. It doesn't matter. It's kind of like, uh, it's kind of like morphine. When you're in pain, and someone gives you morphine, and it makes you feel better, you know that it works, and you don't really care who invented it. You don't care if the person who invented it claims that it was revealed to them by God, or if they cooked it up in a laboratory somewhere, or if they. Uh, stole the idea from someone down the street yeah. uh, who they bumped off. All you know is that morphine works and that it makes you feel better. And that so for, that's, how I've, that's how I've kind of dealt with some of the historical anomalies and oddities, which I, I, you know, I readily acknowledge exist. But for me, my experience with the Book of Mormon and, and Christ has become so real and so powerful that it doesn't matter to me where it came from. And, and I've read in, in recent years, I've, I've read, um, you know, people like Borg, Marcus Borg and, and others who, who take the same approach really with, uh, with new Testament Christianity. Um, they don't really necessarily believe in the literal stories in the Bible. And yet they believe that, the experience and the spirituality uh, are very real and very powerful, and that God is very real, whether the stories are literally real or not. So I don't know if that makes any oh, sense yes, at all. Oh, yes, I love that. Uh, that is so <laughs> encouraging. For me personally, I love that kind of language because um, it puts value into something that I guess what it moves away from is the I know language into kind of the I believe and I have faith in and I choose because it it has power and there's experience there. And this is a perfect segue into how you kind of 
come to that, right? Because there's a spirit, you went through a spiritual journey and a spiritual transformation, I I assume in, in writing your book, because, yeah. and so let's go there. Let's talk about how the book came to be and what the idea was. And Okay. Well, first of all, I was very angry at God, very angry at my faith community, very angry at pretty much everybody, <laughs> and yeah. except for my own family, maybe. Um, and I had to find a way to make sense of all of this and to process it and sort of redefine my beliefs and figure out what I did believe. And I think as Mormons are kind of prone to do, I was very hard on myself and very judgmental and uh, condemned myself because I always believed that if you believed the wrong things that you weren't quote unquote faithful. And then, so I dove into the New Testament and I've always loved the New Testament. I've studied the New Testament for years and years. I've got uh, lots of commentaries and, you know, things that I've read over the years. And I just started to kind of put the things together and thought, what can I do to help someone else who's in, in my shoes? Because as I studied and mainly studied materials and authors and uh, Christian uh, works outside of our faith. Uh, Give us some I authors, found, just okay. so people can maybe, you know, yeah. go in that direction in, in their own study if they're interested. Well, it's kind of complicated because I, I became deeply influenced by uh, postmodern philosophy in law school. Uh, I, uh, uh, Martin Heidegger and Hans Georg Gadamer. Uh, and some of the postmodernists and deconstructionists were very influential in my thinking in law school. I, in law school, I was what they would call a critical, uh, a crit or a critical legal uh, studies uh, adherent, I guess. Uh, I, I, you know, so I, I, I read a lot of philosophy about the meaning of language and the meaning of words and uh, to help me in my law career. So that was a, a, a part of it. Um, Bart Ehrman was actually very, very helpful to me. <laughs> I, I'm sure he wouldn't have intended that, being a dead-again Christian. But I, I found his writings were absolutely helpful to building my faith um, because he was honest. And I found that honesty was a manifestation of God. That's one of the ways that God manifests himself to us is through honesty. And I don't agree with everything you know, that uh, Mr. Ehrman says, but I found his honesty, a a coupled with his knowledge of the scriptures, very refreshing and in an odd, weird, quirky sort of way, very faith-promoting. Uh, Marcus Borg, Francis Schaeffer, um, uh, William James, uh, uh, and probably my greatest intellectual hero, Soren Kierkegaard. Okay. Uh, those are just a few of the people that I've read. Well, let me so. let me go back to what you were saying about Bart Ehrman. Um, so you said oddly faith-promoting. I want to kind of dig at that a little bit and have okay. you explain that faith promotion a little bit. Because um, I, I when I read um, Ehrman, I... I was, you know, in the deconstruction mode. I was really uh -huh. deconstructing kind of my belief system. And um, I found that he was faith-promoting 
too, but I don't know that I know how to articulate that. So I'm really interested. <laughs> I don't know that I do either. <laughs> I mean, you kind of touched on it with honesty. Honesty, yes. But give me an example of, um, like, do you remember reading him and having any kind of epiphanies or realizations about God that were helpful? <sighs> I would, I would have to really think about that. I did, I okay. think. I, I think I came to the conclusion that God is not an interventionist, and that's okay. That uh, I came to, at least it crystallized for me, that from God's perspective, it, it, it what matters most is that we love. Okay. God is love, and we are built to love. We're built to love in the sense that we're the object of God's affection, but we're also built to love in the sense that God created us with this innate ability to reach out to other people and, and love other people. And so while Ehrman uh, was really bothered by theodicy and you know why good things happen to bad people and bad things happen to good people, when I read Ehrman, it... it, it it just kind of came to me that that and, and this may sound cruel crass i don't know how it may sound to other people but in in a large sense it doesn't matter what happens to us in this life what matters is what we do with this life and if we love other people then we're fulfilling the measure of our our creation and so whether there's, I mean, the other thing that was an epiphany and, and kind of an inspiration for my book is that it, this notion in my culture that everything happens for a reason and that God is somehow in control of everything, I just completely rejected. And I don't believe God is in control of everything. And I think I, I started to see a God who says, yeah, you're on an earth where just random stuff is going to happen because people have agency and that means bad things are going to happen. But what matters for you is that no matter what happens, you remember to, to love other people. And as you love other people, you'll find me, you'll discover who, who I am and what I'm about. And I've asked, those are kind of some of the ideas that came to me when I was reading Ehrman. Okay. That's really, that's really interesting. So going back to um, you're in this process of anger and frustration and kind of um, deconstructing God. And so then how did you come to a book about Christ and Gethsemane? Well, um, I started to really think about the story of Christ and what that story was supposed to mean. And, 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 when you think about it, it's really kind of a weird story. I mean, this God comes down and takes human form and walks among humans and and is, lives a human life and then allows himself to get murdered and, uh, and then is taken up into heaven. And, and I thought, well, when you really stop and think about it, it's kind of a odd story. I just kind of had to step out of my belief system and look at it in a, in a different light, and and so I started to think about well, what, why, why does it 
why is it told that way? Why, what, what, what does it mean? And so I really started to focus on the human aspects of Jesus. Because in our faith culture, we view Jesus as perfect. And uh, we put all this pressure on ourselves to be perfect. You know, if you want to have a celestial glory, you have to be perfect. Well, so then I started to say, well, what does it mean to be perfect? And so I started to, I reread the New Testament, uh, the Gospels, but with a new vision. And the vision was, I'm going to try to focus on every like mortal every mortal flaw or little mortal thing that we would criticize in other people, but that were manifested in Christ. So, for example, doubt. Right. Uh, and that's, that inspired the first chapter of my, of my book, If It Be Possible. Did you know that you were going to write a book? No. How did that idea, I want to know, when did that come? I'm going to write a book. I started to give talks. Uh, as I had occasion, uh, and the reception I got when I started to kind of throw these ideas out there in sacrament meetings, uh, and just talking with other people were so well received that I, I, I was encouraged by the helpfulness of the message. And so I decided, well, maybe I ought to write some of those ideas down. And so I started writing ideas down and then I decided... I really need to write a. I really need to organize this into a book that I can hopefully maybe help people. Why do you think it was so well received? Like we just barely touched on this one, the first chapter of the book, which talks about um, the vulnerability of Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane when he um, he basically you start out the chapter the the sub title for that chapter is um if it be possible talk about how that message like talk about what the message was and how it was received and why you think it was received well when you were just giving your talks good question i don't really know but i have my my theories and, and the the point of that chapter was to get people to back off on judging those who doubt and those who have fear, which I think is a shadow of doubt. Um, and to get them to look at Christ uh, and, and, and not be so judge, judgmental. And when I started to go and, and talk about, well, why did Christ say, if it be possible, remove this from me, take it from me? Because in our culture, geez, if you turn down a calling or if you even think about it overnight, you're just not a faithful Mormon. Right. Uh, and yet here you have Christ who says three times, I don't want to do this. If, if there's any way you can take this away from me, take it away. You know, we always kind of scurry over to the nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done and say, oh, well, that's well, that's just so beautiful that, that Christ was so submissive. But then I started to think, well, you can't have true submission unless you first have opposition because there's nothing there's nothing to submit. If if God's asking us to do things that we want to do and that are easy, then there can't be any submission. Well, if that's the case, then there has to be doubt in order for there to be true faith, and therefore we ought not to condemn and judge doubters, Christ, who is chief among them. 
and and some may say, well, he wasn't doubting, but uh, you have to honestly ask yourself, why would he ask three times, if it be possible, take this from me? He did not want to do what the Father wanted him to do. And so it's not a sin for me to have moments or phases in my life where I don't want to do what it is that I think God wants me to do. And I have no right to condemn or judge myself. uh, And no one else has the right to condemn or judge me or anyone else for not wanting to do or being afraid or hesitant to do what what, uh, they think God wants them to do. So I think it gave people hope that they they could have doubt uh, and question authority uh, three times even uh, and still be a good person because Christ did and he was perfect. Come the fount of every blessing to my heart to sing the grace. Thank you for joining us today on A Thoughtful Faith. To discuss this podcast, check us out at athoughtfulfaith.org. The music from this podcast was generously donated by Lisa Frazier. Hear more from her at lisafrazier.com. See you, see you for